Most of the people directly involved in Oscar's conviction are dead, including D.A. Powell, A.D.A. Blyer, and many of the original TCSO officers. Although we reached out to Byrd with no response, we never really expected to get any kind of truth or remorse from him, even after D'Angelo was identified. However, there is one person who has direct knowledge of the evidence and investigation, is still alive, and appeared, at least in 1976, to have a conscience. TCSO Forensics Officer Brian Johnson. Our only reason for thinking that Brian Johnson might be different is because that's what Oscar believed. Handwritten letter from Oscar Clifton to Ray Donahue, September 24, 1976. One other thing. I feel that if you would ask B. Johnson, he may break. Just from what he said to me on the way back to the jail. Just from what he said. I think he'll help in time. I may be wrong. This was particularly interesting to us because Brian Johnson documented and collected the evidence at the Richmond scenes and autopsy. Needless to say, we were pretty curious about what Johnson had said to Oscar. A little more digging through the files produced the answer. April 16, 2001, Brian Johnson at Tulare County Sheriff's Crime Laboratory in Visalia, California. Dear Brian Johnson, I am writing this letter today requesting you to help Professor Barry C. Sheck from New York, who is over at the Innocence Project, in locating the evidence that can now be DNA tested and other evidence listed in my request below. As you know by now, I have filed a motion under Penal Code Section 1405 seeking DNA testing. Judge Gerald Sevier is hearing this motion, and Professor Barry C. Sheck and his student from the Innocence Project is representing me in this action. Brian, at this time, I will bring your attention to the day in July 1976 that I was convicted. You escorted me back to the county jail from the little office at the back door of the courtroom, down the hallway, and around the corner to the elevator. As we were standing there waiting for the elevator, you made the statement to me, Don't worry, the truth will come out someday. Just as those words came out of your mouth, Bob Bird came around the corner and told you to keep your damn mouth shut. After that statement by Bird, he stayed with us until I was back in the county jail, not allowing us to be alone again. Brian, those words that you said, don't worry, the truth will come out someday, have been in my mind over and over again throughout the years since you made that statement in July of 1976. I have prayed that somehow our Lord would come into your heart and life. Then you would let me know what evidence you knew about or had in the laboratory evidence locker that would have brought out the truth. Brian, I know that your job was on the line in July of 1976 when Bob Bird stopped you and threatened you by telling you to keep your damn mouth shut. But today, Bob Bird is no threat to your job and you have absolute immunity. And now you can make a justice that went blind at the time of my trial. Turn around so the truth will come out. In reading your testimony during trial, you started out telling the truth until District Attorney Powell called for a break and Bird and him got you to change your testimony during that few minutes by the time you was put back on the stand. There are four of us that knew the truth about what was said at the elevator in July 1976 while we were waiting, and our Lord in heaven was one of the four, and he will keep what was said in his mind forever and ever. Obviously, that letter has really, really bothered us over the years. VPD Sergeant Vaughn tried to discuss it with Johnson, but he refused to return Vaughn's calls. We would love for Brian Johnson to explain all of that to us, but he said he won't answer any questions about the case without a subpoena. Saying that someone needs to file a court action before you'll tell the truth is frustrating. 
but that was his position when we approached him in person last year. It would make no sense for Clifton to write to Johnson with such a personal plea unless the gist of the letter were true. If Johnson hadn't made the comment at the elevator, he would just roll his eyes and throw the letter in the trash. What would be the point? We have a lot of thoughts about specific knowledge in Johnson's possession based on his work on the evidence, so we thought we would look back at Donna's case from his unique perspective. Johnson's first contact with the case came when he was called to the bike scene at 9 p.m. on December 26th. Johnson listed his arrival at 9.25 p.m., and he reported TCSO Peabody, McDonald, McCarthy, and Chamberlain on the scene. We're not sure why Sergeant Byrd was not included in that list. It's inconsistent with Byrd's report of his time at the bike scene that night. At trial, Johnson testified that Byrd directed his work, so Byrd was there with Johnson at the bike scene at some point that night. Johnson reported the weather conditions as cold and damp. That explains why David Richmond reported that he saw dew on the bike at 6.30, and he believed that it had been there for some time. Johnson's first recorded task was taking photos of tire tracks near Donna's bike. We know from trial testimony that he only photographed tire marks that were specifically pointed out to him by Sergeant Byrd. Johnson also testified that he did not photograph any of the shoe prints he found at the bike scene, also at Byrd's direction. To be clear, near the bike, there was only one discernible tire print photographed. It was a partial print from one tire, only one tire. At trial, Morton did not even try to pretend that he could identify the tire's make and model or match it to a specific tire on Oscar's truck. D. Ward keeps repeating disproven lies about Morton identifying all four tires from the vehicle in a specific pattern that matched Oscar's truck. None of that ever happened. Ward might know that if he'd bothered to read the entire trial transcript. It's interesting to look at Bird's report from the bike scene. It gives some indication of the direction that he gave to Johnson. Bird focused on two things, a particular tread that he seemed to believe was similar to two of the tires on Oscar's truck, and tracks that appeared to indicate a pickup truck with posi traction. That detail has always bothered us because Rick Carter's truck, which was parked in the Clifton driveway that night, had posi traction. How and why was Byrd looking for and directing the forensics officer to only photograph tracks that could have come from the two trucks parked in Clifton's driveway while he was away at dinner that night? There was absolutely no evidentiary or logical reason to choose those tracks over all the others. At trial, Johnson testified that he was directed to ignore dozens of other tracks at or near the bike scene. For some reason, Bird believed that those two specific types of tracks belonged to the kidnapper's truck. How could he possibly have focused on only those prints unless he'd already been out to Oscar's house and was trying to match the trucks in the driveway? Bird lived a mile from the bike scene, and there are conflicting TCSO reports as to exactly what time he was first called. However, it's undisputed that he did not arrive until 845 which was an hour and 30 minutes after TCSO McCarthy first arrived at the Richmond house. Bert had also been close friends of the Richmond family for more than a decade, and it's possible that the Richmonds called him directly for help finding Donna. 
Driving the speed limit, the round trip from Bird's house to Clifton's house and back to the bike scene would have taken 27 minutes. When Bird was first called, was he told that the name A. Clifton was on an invoice book found at the scene? Did Bird's personal bias towards Oscar and upset over his recent return to Tulare County trigger him to assume Oscar was involved and drive out to his house to look around? We'll likely never know the truth, but his focus on the trucks in Oscar's driveway hours before the search warrant and arrest will never stop bothering us. Next, Johnson photographed the invoice book and notepad. He reported that the invoice book said A. Clifton on the outside and that it was on the east side of Donna's bike. Johnson sealed both items in an evidence bag at 10 p.m. and turned that over to TCSO Hart. According to the testimony at trial, nobody from TCSO touched the invoice book prior to Johnson, who testified that he held it on an evidence bag and turned the pages for Bird to review. We don't believe that for a second. Bird's report indicates that he had reviewed the invoice book prior to calling Johnson. That means that it was picked up and put down at least once prior to being photographed. David and Don Richmond's first statements did not mention the invoice book. A follow-up report in January says that David and Don both saw the book when they found the bike, but didn't touch it. At trial, Don testified that he saw it but didn't touch it, and David said he picked it up and looked through it when he found the bike. None of David's fingerprints were found on or in the invoice book, so that story doesn't make a lot of sense. We honestly have no idea if the Richmond saw or touched the invoice book that night, but the location of the invoice book and notepad right next to Donna's bike in Johnson's photograph is unreliable at best. At 10.20 p.m., Johnson reported that he took additional photos at the bike scene using number stands. Evidence stands number 1 through 8, tire track photos. No measurements were taken according to Johnson's testimony at trial on June 25, 1976. There's no mention of any bicycle tire tracks in Johnson's report, and none of the scene photos provided to the defense showed bike tracks. At trial, Johnson testified that he saw one short bike track and was able to go back to the lab and obtain a photo of it when pressed by Donahue. We're not sure why that photo was withheld from the defense. We've never seen it. Presumably, it had other tire or foot tracks that Bird did not want the defense to see. That would be consistent with the cropping of a single tire track photo shown at trial. The full image clearly shows an unidentified footprint with a wavy sole pattern right next to the tire track. This didn't match the black shoes Oscar was wearing, or the partial heel print photo from Neil Ranch. From Johnson's trial testimony, it matches the description of a print that Johnson said Bird told him not to photograph, and Johnson did not include it in his report. To be clear, the exhibit of the photo presented to the jury had the footprint cropped out. Why? Evidence stand number nine, invoice book, notepad, and sheet of carbon paper. The cover of the invoice book, inside and out, was free of fingerprints, although there were smudges consistent with someone wiping it. 
Later, at the lab, TCSO Hensley matched three prints found inside the used pages of the book to Oscar and his wife. The jotter notepad and carbon paper were largely ignored. Neither produced any fingerprints, despite both items having been used. TCSO made no investigation into the ownership of the notepad, or even where it may have been purchased. Although we have photocopies of the used pages, the notepad itself was destroyed with the other physical evidence in 1977. Evidence stand number 10, Michelob bottle, no fingerprints. Evidence stand number 11, orange party pack bottle, no fingerprints. Evidence stand number 12, Bacardi bottle, no fingerprints. Evidence stand number 13, Schlitz malt liquor bottle and Coors can, no fingerprints. Evidence stand number 14, two Pepsi cans, no fingerprints. Johnson testified regarding the lack of prints on all of these items at trial on June 25, 1976. Johnson next fingerprinted and photographed on his bike. It was a root beer brown Schwinn 10-speed, and it's found on its left side with the front tire and handlebars turned completely backwards. For some reason, Johnson did not assign an evidence number to the bike or include its location in his scene diagram. We've posted this diagram on our Facebook and web pages and added the location of the bike for reference. Johnson loaded the bike into his TCSO evidence transport truck and, while doing so, may have accidentally transferred paint from his vehicle onto the bike. The paint transfer is typical of how the evidence in the case was handled, casually. The bike was simply picked up and put in the truck like any other piece of lost property. Taken back to TCSO, and parked in the evidence room. It wasn't covered or wrapped to preserve any trace evidence. TCSO Hensley and Bird testified at trial that Johnson was unable to lift any fingerprints for comparison from the bike, not even Donna's. This brings us back to one of the long-standing rumors in the Richmond case, that Oscar ran into Donna on her bike and that the paint transfers on the Schwinn came from Oscar's truck. On March 15, 1976, Johnson received a verbal request from Chuck Morton at the lab in Oakland to remove paint samples from Oscar's truck. At 9.30 a.m. on March 16th, Johnson returned to Jackson's Towing, where Oscar's truck was being held in the impound lot, and he removed paint samples from 14 different locations on Oscar's truck. He completed the work and returned to his lab at 11 a.m. Those samples were sent to Morton by a registered mail on March 22nd, on March 28th, Morton tested the paint scrapings from Oscar's truck against his January 27th testing of the white paint transfer on Donna's bike and the paint samples from the TCSO truck. The paint on Donna's bike was similar to the TCSO truck and Oscar's truck was positively excluded. There was no damage to the bike, Donna's pants, or Donna's legs. That's it. That is the full story. We understand that Bird and other people have continued to say that Oscar ran down Donna, but it didn't happen. Bird has always known the truth, as does everyone else who was in court on June 25, 1976, for Brian Johnson's testimony. Those are the true facts. Evidence stand number 15, 1.45 a.m., Saturday, December 27th, 
Johnson photographed tire tracks at 2nd and Firebaugh, in a rut on the east side of the railroad tracks, finished at 2.25 a.m. Evidence stand number 16, 2.30 a.m., one quarter mile south of 2nd and Firebaugh. More tire tracks, partially in canal, finished 3 a.m. Evidence stand number 17, 3.15 a.m., 100 yards north of List, recovered a pillow next to grapevines, west side of Dirt Drive, finished 3.30 a.m. We have no idea why this pillow was out in the grapevines, and it was never processed as evidence. It's a unique home-sewn pillow with stars, and we posted a photo of it on our Facebook and website in case anyone recognizes it or knows why it was out there that night. At this point, all of the evidence collected was transported to the lab in Visalia. The bike scene was also totally released at this point, 3.30 a.m. TCSO didn't hold it for daylight or call in the state crime lab from Fresno for assistance. They just drove away. 5.50 a.m., Johnson arrived at the Tulare County Jail and collected clothing, head hair, and pubic hair from Oscar. 7.50 a.m., Johnson returned to the bike scene and collected a soil sample from the base of tree number 3. 7.54 a.m., Johnson collected a soil sample from the area between tree number 4 and number 5 at the bike scene. 8.45 a.m., Johnson and TCSO Hensley took possession of Oscar and Rick Carter's trucks from TCSO Richmond at Jackson's Towing. 9 a.m., Johnson assisted Hensley taking black and white and color photos of Oscar's truck. They also took inked impressions of the tires and collected floor sweepings from the inside of the truck. We've heard the argument that Beth Brumley would have had no way to distinguish Oscar's truck from any other plain white pickup, and that's why she couldn't pick it out from the six white truck photos she was shown at trial. This argument is based on the fact that Brumley only reported seeing the truck from the passenger side, so she couldn't see the black Ford lettering on the tailgate. However, there were three very distinctive things around the passenger door area of Oscar's truck. There were two medium-sized gray primer spots, the red engine emblem, which Brent Trueblood clearly described from a distance of 164 feet, and a giant black custom side mirror. If you look at the photo we have posted, you can see that the mirror, with its mount, is about the same size as the wing window and could partially obscure the view of the driver. We can believe that Brumley might have forgotten to mention those three unique details of Oscar's truck in her statements, but she should have been able to pick it out of a photo lineup. Brian Johnson lifted three latent fingerprints from the passenger side of Oscar's truck, two inside the wing window, and one on the glove box door, and three from the outside of the passenger door, below the latch and upper left edge. None of those prints matched Oscar, Rick Carter, or Donna, and they remain unidentified. We have a photocopy of those fingerprints, but the quality is too poor for any kind of comparison. As far as we can tell, those prints were never entered into any database for comparison. We don't know if the fingerprint card was microfilmed or discarded with the other evidence in 1977. Although Hensley and Johnson reported finding and photographing a leaf stuck in the passenger side mirror, that leaf is not visible in any of the truck photos we have. Johnson reported that the mirror was removed and stored with the leaf attached. The leaf was sent to Dr. John Strother, research botanist at Berkeley. 
Strother concluded that the leaf was likely from the genus Citrus, but he said it was impossible to identify it as orange, let alone a specific variety. This report was suppressed by Powell, and Dr. Strother was not called to testify at the trial. Instead, Powell just repeatedly said that it was an orange leaf. Oscar was not provided a copy of Dr. Strother's report until August 1992. If you look at the photos on our website from the inside of Oscar's truck, you can see many items cluttering the floor and dashboard. According to Johnson's report and the evidence cards, he did not inventory any of those items and dismissed them as having no evidentiary value. At the time of trial, Oscar had not seen those photos and did not realize that his white painter's pants were still sitting on the passenger floor when the truck was impounded. We would love to ask Brian Johnson why he didn't give those pants an evidence number and properly tag and enter them in on an evidence card. Also, why didn't he come forward during the trial and explain to D.A. Powell that he had the painter's pants in his custody? This is how Oscar's testimony at trial ended. Powell, Mr. Clifton, those white painter's pants that you can take off and then throw away, are those the ones that you were wearing the day you killed Donna Jo Richman? Clifton. Sir, I stated I did not do what you've claimed. I had nothing to do with it. Powell, no further questions. Donahue, that's all, Mr. Clifton. The court, you may step down. Regardless of whether or not the pants were sitting in evidence and Powell knew it, Donahue should have objected to that entire statement posed as a question. There was no evidence that Oscar or anyone else wore those pants on the 26th and Powell had no foundation for that question on cross. By failing to object, Donahue did not preserve that issue to be raised on appeal. By the time that Oscar discovered that Powell had the pants the entire time, it was too late. Although it was a completely intentional lie, Powell was able to make the jury believe that Oscar's clothes were clean because he had disposed of the white painter's pants. Oscar never wore the pants on the 26th. They had no blood, mud, or footprints on them, and they weren't missing. However, Oscar was barred from arguing that prosecutorial misconduct on appeal due to Donahue's complete and utter failure to do his job. Some of the blame here should also fall on Brian Johnson. He should have inventoried all of the items in the truck and processed the pants for potential evidence. That oversight contributed to Donahue and Oscar's confusion the assumption that the pants were missing from the truck when it was seized by TCSO. 11.30 a.m. on Saturday the 27th, Johnson completed processing Oscar's truck at Jackson's Towing. Rick Carter's truck was photographed from the outside, but no further processing or inventory was done. 11.40 a.m., Johnson arrived at the scene of Donna's underpants and sanitary pad with belt on Road 176. He photographed the items in black and white in color on the east side of the road, on the west bank of the ditch. We posted two of these photos. Johnson tagged and sealed the items in evidence bags. He and Hensley photographed tire tracks on the west and east side of the road. That last detail is interesting because no tire photos from the east side of 176 were provided to the defense or entered into evidence at trial. In fact, TCSO officers testified that they didn't locate any tire tracks on the east side, near the actual side of the underwear, 
Obviously, these tire track photos did not match Oscar's truck, pointed to a different suspect vehicle, and since they were exculpatory, were suppressed. One fifty p.m. Johnson went to the Richmond residence with Bird and Holguin. Nancy Richmond positively identified the panties and belt as belonging to Donna. Bird also had Donna's shoe in his possession at the Richmond house. Johnson's report stated that the shoe was also positively identified by Nancy Richmond. The shoe had been located earlier that morning by Donna's brother David, Jim Diet, and Jerry Runciman. 2.05 p.m. Johnson received Donna's shoe from Bird. His testimony at trial was that no fingerprints were found on the shoe, not even Donna's. 2.30 p.m. Johnson had returned to the scene on Road 176 and was just finishing processing it when he was called to Neal Ranch. 2.35 p.m. Johnson arrived at Neal Ranch to process the scene where Donna had been found. He took scene photos including footprint and tire tracks as directed by Bird. He collected soil, blood, leaves, pieces of victims' clothing, and took measurements. Johnson personally located what he described as a multicolored ski cap with possible hairs adhering. He photographed it in its grove location and collected it into evidence. Johnson completed processing the scene, and TCSO cleared Neal Ranch at 5.30 p.m. By this point, two unidentified men from the local funeral home had come to the grove and removed Donna's body from the scene. They first went to the Exeter Hospital for x-rays and then went to the funeral home. DNA testing was still 10 years away, and nobody was thinking about gloves, masks, or evidence suits. TCSO did not secure the scene until the state crime lab team could come and take plaster casts of the tire and boot heel prints. They spent a total of three hours at Neal Ranch and the next day, workers were back in the grove. 5.45 p.m., Johnson photographed Donna's body at the funeral home. He collected all of her clothing and jewelry, a head hair sample, hair strands from her right thigh, leaves from her right leg, and fingernail scrapings. Each item was tagged and logged into evidence. Additionally, Johnson took the following items into evidence as handed to him by Dr. Miller during the autopsy. 6.45 p.m., saline solution. 6.50 p.m., pubic hair and dirt from skin. 7.10 p.m., gastric contents. 7.15 p.m., blood sample. Johnson took additional photographs during the autopsy. 7.35 p.m., Johnson secured the autopsy evidence in his lab in Visalia. Sunday, December 28, 1975. 9.10 a.m. Johnson was called to photograph Donna's second shoe at a location one quarter mile east of Road 156 on the south side of Avenue 264. 9.18 a.m. Johnson collected the shoe into evidence and preserved it for possible fingerprints. 9.25 a.m. Johnson photographed two white rags found in the driveway of a nearby abandoned house. 9.40 a.m. Johnson collected the rags into evidence. 9.45 a.m., Johnson completed the scene and returned the evidence to his lab. 11.30 a.m., Johnson received Donna's known fingerprints from TCSO Logan and referenced in his report to see TCSO Hensley's report 
for fingerprint comparisons to evidence. Monday, December 29, 1975, 4.15 p.m. Johnson received items of evidence from the search of the Clifton residence and tagged and logged each item onto chain of custody cards. Tuesday, December 30, 1975, 9.20 a.m. Johnson transported Dr. George Loquim and criminalist Charles Morton to the underwear scene on Road 176. Morton made plaster casts of the tire prints photographed 50 feet north on the west side of the road. 10.20 a.m., Johnson drove the criminalist to three other locations, including the bike scene and two other tire track locations, unknown which locations. No plaster casts taken. 12.10 p.m., Johnson released Donna's pubic hair and vial of fluid to the custody of Morton. Wednesday, December 31, 1975. Unknown time. Johnson received a photo of Donna from Bird for enlargement. 3.30 p.m. Johnson conducted additional processing of Oscar's truck with Hensley. No additional comparable fingerprints found. Johnson photographed a red stain which was collected by Hensley and later determined to be rust. Hensley also collected dirt from under Oscar's truck and removed all four tires. January 8, 1976, 3 p.m. Johnson received Donna's green ditto pants from TCSO Bird and logged them into evidence. March 29, 1976, 11.45 a.m. Johnson removed the Neil Ranch heel print photo negatives from evidence. 3.45 p.m. Johnson turned over the negatives to Mr. J.L. Harris at the San Diego airport for possible enhancement. The lab in San Diego was hired to try to match the heel of the cowboy boots taken from Oscar's closet to the partial heel print photo taken a couple of rows north of Donna's body at Neil Ranch. Presumably, Powell received a report from the lab but refused to produce it. Nobody from the lab was called to testify at trial, so it appears that the specialty lab either determined that the print in the growth didn't match Oscar's boots or there was no way to make a determination. April 8, 1977, unknown time. Johnson discarded the following items from the evidence refrigerator per the direction of Sergeant Bird. 1. Reported known blood sample of Oscar Clifton. 2. Reported known blood sample of Donna Richmond. 3. Reported stomach contents of Donna Richmond. 4. Reported known pubic hair of Donna Richmond. And 5. Washing solution. There is no question that Brian Johnson violated Penal Code 135 and or Penal Codes 14, 17, and 18 in addition to the court orders to preserve the evidence on appeal. He committed obstruction of justice and contempt of court and could have been criminally charged with a misdemeanor and sentenced to a year in jail. This would have ended his career in law enforcement since an officer who has committed obstruction of justice and defied court orders cannot be a credible witness. There is no exception under the law for my boss told me to do that highly illegal thing. In fact, Johnson's actions were particularly egregious because he was a trained forensics officer. 
His entire job was to document, collect, and properly store evidence in criminal cases. The items were in his custody, and he knew, for certain, that he was not supposed to destroy them. Yet he did. While we have no doubt that Johnson would have been fired if he refused, and Byrd would have tried to destroy the evidence anyway, that doesn't make it okay. Johnson had several other choices in this situation. He could have told Byrd that he destroyed the evidence and temporarily secured it under another case number. He could have filed a written objection to Byrd's order with Sheriff Wiley, D.A. Powell, Judge Bradley, his employee representative, the Tulare County Board of Supervisors, the State Attorney General, and the Governor. Or he could have contacted Oscar's attorneys and told them the evidence needed to be secured outside TCSO custody. This is what we know about Johnson's work on the case and his contact with the scenes and evidence. However, this is limited to what Byrd allowed him to document in reports and give to the defense. This excludes possible information that Johnson saw or heard firsthand on the scenes or was told second or third hand from other TCSO officers. Given that we know that Johnson was willing to destroy critical evidence, it's impossible to trust that he included the entire truth in his reports and testimony. As we've said, Johnson told us he would not answer any questions without a subpoena. But these would be the first questions we would ask him. Was Bob Bird at the bike scene when you arrived? If yes, why was he missing from the officers on scene in your report? When you arrived at the bike scene, was Clifton's invoice book in the exact position shown in the evidence photos? Do you have direct or indirect knowledge that the invoice book was picked up or moved prior to the taking of your photographs? Did you see or hear about any items of Donna's clothing found in the vicinity of Donna's bike? If so, which items and who took those items from the scene? Did you see Exeter PD Sergeant Joseph D'Angelo at any time on December 26th through the 28th, 1975? If so, when and where? Did you interact with him, or are you aware of other TCSO officers who interacted with him on those days? Was there anything specific about the tire tracks and shoe prints that Bird ordered you to ignore, not mark with evidence stands and photograph? Did you recognize them? or have any idea why they were excluded? Why didn't you inventory the items inside Clifton's truck and log them into evidence? Specifically, why didn't you document the white painter's pants on the passenger side floor of the truck? Why didn't the pants receive an evidence tag? And why isn't there a chain of custody record for those pants? Why didn't you inform the court during the trial that you had the painter's pants in your custody? Did you inform Sergeant Bird or D.A. Powell that you had the pants? Do you know what happened to the card of unidentified latent fingerprints you recovered from the passenger side of Clifton's truck? Do you believe it was destroyed in 1977? Is it possible that it was saved to microfilm? Do you know if the fingerprints were ever entered into any fingerprint storage system? Do you have any direct or indirect knowledge that either of Donna's shoes were placed on Avenue 264 by any member of law enforcement, including Exeter PD, TCSO, or any other agency? Do you have any direct or indirect knowledge that Donna's undergarments were placed on Road 176 
by any member of law enforcement, including Exeter PD, TCSO, or any other agency. Do you know what happened to the photographs you took of tire tracks on the east side of Road 176, why they were not given to the defense or entered as exhibits during Clifton's trial? Did you see fresh tree spray on Donna's body when you arrived at Neal Ranch? Did you see white tree spray dripping from the leaves above the body, as clearly indicated in your crime scene photos? Why didn't you document the tree spray contamination of Donna's body and the scene, and collect a sample of the spray for the lab to eliminate as a source of contamination during their evidence testing? Did you report the tree spray to Dr. Miller at autopsy for inclusion in his pathology report? Other than TCSO personnel, who did you see at Neal Ranch while you were processing that scene? Grove employees, funeral home workers, Richmond family members, members of other law enforcement agencies including Exeter PD? What footprints and tire tracks did you see at Neal Ranch that were not documented in your report and or photographed? Were you directed by anyone at the scene to ignore that evidence, and if so, why do you believe it was chosen for exclusion? Your report indicates that you collected, quote, items of victims' clothing at Neal Ranch, but the clothing on Donna's body in the grove and in the pre-autopsy photos at the funeral home matches, and everything is still in place. Exactly what items of Donna's clothing were collected at Neal Ranch, and more specifically, did you collect one of her shoes and green ditto pants at that location? Sheriff Wiley's supplemental report indicates that Donna's body was released to two men from the funeral home who transported her body to the hospital for x-rays and then to the funeral home. Do you have any knowledge or evidence that proves the chain of custody was not broken at that point? Do you know why Donna's pants were not taken into evidence until January 8, 1976? Do you know where they were between December 26th and January 8th? Are you aware of any plaster casts taken in the case, other than those taken by Charles Morton on Road 176? Were you directed at any time by any person, including Sergeant Byrd, to ignore physical evidence in the case other than that disclosed in your reports and trial testimony? Are you aware, directly or indirectly, of any exculpatory evidence that has not been disclosed to the defense? Are you aware of any witnesses that were not disclosed to the defense or called at trial? Did TCSO interview the workers present at Neal Ranch on the day of the homicide? Did TCSO canvass the residence between Don Lee's house and the bike scene or between Don Lee's and Neal Ranch? Are you aware of any physical evidence or witness statements that point to the presence of an Exeter PD car, Exeter PD officer, or Joseph D'Angelo on Marinette on Donna's route home at or near Neal Ranch, at or near the bike scene, or on Avenue 264 or Road 176? When you were asked by Sergeant Byrd to destroy the physical evidence in your custody, did you discuss that with anyone within TCSO or the DA's office? Who reviewed and signed off on your April 1977 report? Did you inform the court clerk, the trial judge, or the defense about Sergeant Byrd's request? Are you aware of an inquiry about the evidence in the Richmond case of any kind from a police agency, including, but not limited to, Sacramento Sheriff, Sacramento PD, Visalia PD, or Exeter PD? 
Did any law enforcement agency ask for results of the evidence testing or to test items of evidence? Did you ever have any contact with Joseph D'Angelo or hear any second or third hand information about him during his years on Exeter PD or since? Are you aware of any wrongdoing by any member of law enforcement or the DA's office during the Richmond investigation, Clifton's trial, or subsequent to Clifton's conviction? Did you tell Clifton that the truth will come out, or words to that effect in the courthouse after his conviction? If so, what truth did you mean? We believe that Johnson did make that remark to Oscar, and we're incredibly sad that Oscar's faith in Johnson was misplaced. The Clifton family's suffering has been grossly compounded by TCSO's false accusations against Oscar in the Armour case, and the outright lies about the DNA testing and evidence contained in Ward's January report. Cruelty is the point with Ward and Alavezos, and they intend to make Clifton's children, grandchildren, and widows sorry that they ever pushed to see D'Angelo investigated. We're long past being surprised by anything or anyone in this case, but we did have a shred of hope that Brian Johnson would care more about seeing D'Angelo held accountable for the murders in Exeter than covering for past bad acts. Although Johnson no longer faces any criminal penalties for the evidence destruction, Tulare County could seek retribution by taking action against his pension. Obviously, he could ask the AG or Governor for Immunity or Whistleblower Protection but that would hardly make up for the anger and outrage he would face from TCSO and the DA. We know they can, and do, make life miserable for their perceived enemies, and nothing seems to make them angrier than the truth in this case. The party line in Tulare County is that Clifton was a monster who got what he deserved, and D'Angelo just kind of accidentally shot some people in Visalia, but never ever would have committed any crimes in Exeter. The DA will never back down, admit any portion of the truth, or read the original case documents. Ward seems to know next to nothing about D'Angelo's other crimes, especially the 1976 EAR cases. Framing, staging, and misdirecting the police were always the point with D'Angelo. He took pride in proving that he could easily trick his peers. Tulare County is working overtime to prove that he was right. (laughs) 